0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas with a simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of God.
1: Here we're in our third week of the study of Jonah. I've heard from several of you how meaningful it's been to be in this uh, book together, not only because of the surprising themes, that, that we find in the, in the story of Jonah, but it's also servicing some really meaningful conversations around Scripture and our relationship with the Bible. I know that we talked about this in the first week, but books like Jonah actually bring about uh, a controversy for some people, debate for some about how we read the Bible. Are we to read it figuratively or literally? Like, what actually happened here in Jonah? How are we supposed to take that? There is uh, a, a couple ways to read it, you know, because some would say, with maybe a cynical tone, come on, really? A whale carried Jonah for like three days like an Uber? Really? Like, he, is that really what happened? Come on, let's not just be silly. And then other people would respond, well, what faithful Christians do is we read the Bible literally, word for word, every verse. And so we have this debate that goes on. And I would just, I think for this reading especially, for this book, I would encourage us to consider something different. What we know about the book of Jonah is that it is historical, like Jonah was a real person. We see writings about Jonah within scripture, outside of Jonah, and also outside the Bible. And so we know that Jonah was a real person. We know that Nineveh was a real place. These experiences are a part of history. Uh, So we can't read it like a fable. It's not just made up, just to teach us some sort of moral or ethical understanding. But we can read the Bible, take the Bible seriously without having to read it word for word, literally. What I mean by that is this, is that we know this is not just a parable, but this is about real people. But I think the way in which we read scripture is different from each book that we find. It's like each literature that we find, we're called to read differently differently. Uh, with its themes, with its writing, with its purpose. And so what we find here in Jonah is beautiful poetry, its symbolism. Many scholars would call this satire. It's not to say it's not literal, but it's like we can take the Bible seriously without taking it literally. And there's also people who take the Bible literally but not seriously. And there's ways for us to get into God's Word faithfully, and to read it slowly, That this is not just some ancient fable, but I would say that we are called to read this in a different way than we would read the Gospels, so to speak. And so the genre that many people hold the book of Jonah is historical prophetic satire. Historical prophetic satire. And what I would say with words like satire and poetry is we're called to read it slowly, with our imaginations, with our prayers open to what God's deeper meaning through this book is. So for instance, at the end of chapter one, God sends a fish to swallow Jonah, and instead of debating whether or not that could happen, let's just take a closer look at what is going on in God's word, so for something that's actually more important. So when we first find the fish at the uh, at the end of chapter one, when it swallows Jonah, it's in the masculine form. If you were to actually know, like the Hebrew, we find this fish in the mas- as a masculine noun. Then in chapter 2, when Jonah is in the belly of the fish, the fish takes on a feminine form. The writer has now changed it to a feminine form. And then when the fish releases Jonah, at the end of chapter 2, it goes back to masculine. Now, if you were to read the Bible literally, that means that this fish is transitioned during the book of Jonah. And my guess is people who are literalists probably don't like that idea of being in their Bible. But what if there's something deeper going on here? What if there's something deeper going on? Uh, what is more important is the themes that the writer is trying to provoke in us as we're reading this. The writers are trying to do something, like create a picture of this fish that is like a mother to Jonah who's carrying him. With this beautiful imagery, this is as true as anything else we could read in the book of Jonah, as we're seeing the nature of God, that God provides something to care for us, to move us, to nurture us into being the people who we were created to be. And you know how it says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish? Actual Hebrew, you could translate that word belly, could also be translated womb. So Jonah's being held in this womb. This fish is carrying Jonah like um, this maternal care and love. Furthermore, this is like why I think scripture is so much more beautiful. If we are just read it literally and just kind of blow past it, when we stop and slow down when we see what's going on here, it's actually something more beautiful. The word, the Hebrew word for womb or belly is this word right here, uh, rechim, rechim. So that word right there is, is the same root word as another word in Hebrew, which is, is the same kind of the same words for mercy. So Jonah's being carried by mercy. Like is being carried by mercy when he didn't ask for it, he didn't want it. He was hit rock bottom and God found him, grabbed him, provided for him, and carried him to where he needed to be. Isn't that imagery just beautiful? Isn't that more expansive? And we just see that this is the very nature of God, that God holds us and carries us by mercy. Oftentimes, when we have hit rock bottom, there it is waiting for us. This makes me think of a quote by Barbara Brown Taylor, who said, New life starts in the dark, whether it's a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. That's what we find happening here in Jonah's story so far. In chapters 1 and 2, we find this new life emerging. And what we find in chapter 3 is almost like Jonah has been born again, been released back into this world, hopefully a different and transformed person. So Jonah 3 begins with... uh, Jonah, he's vomited onto the shore like a birth, right? Just sent off into the shore again in verse one. And then the the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. Again, this mirrors chapter one. What the author is trying to do here is, is mirroring chapter one and chapter three. This is another opportunity for Jonah to live into his name, to be faithful, to be a messenger of peace. And this time, Jonah actually goes. Humorously, what is the message that Jonah was called to give? What is the sermon that Jonah was called to give but didn't want to give? What is the thing that he was afraid to share with the most decrepit people in the world? Here was Jonah's great message. It was this. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. That's the thing he was running from, is that beautiful message that Jonah, this sermon that message, uh, that, that, uh, that Jonah had. And guys, if you were to read the other prophetic writings, they are pages and pages and pages of prose and someone speaking on God's behalf, pages of promises detailing what would happen. And here, Jonah in the Hebrew just gives five words. This sermon is just five words in the Hebrew language, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was it. That was it. What's alarming for me is not only the brevity of this message, but what's also alarming to me is what's missing. There's no word of what Nineveh did wrong. There's no word of hope or redemption. There's no word of this is what you can do to make things right. Just succinct doom and gloom. And most importantly, what else is missing? No no mention of God. I mean, this would be actually confusing for the people of Nineveh to hear. Like, how are we going to be overthrown? Is it going to be a famine? Is it another nation? Like, what's going on here? Is this from God? Who is this person? Why are they speaking to this to us? Yet, regardless of this, uh, something takes place. This dramatic thing. It, is this compelling, this message in its brevity and its confusion is actually compelling enough for the people of Nineveh to respond drastically. In verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed. And all of them, all of them from the greatest to the least, Put on sackcloth. For whatever reason, Jonah's message captivates this community. It's not due to his eloquence or the mastery of storytelling. It's almost as if Jonah was trying to do the least required of him. But regardless, the news of Jonah's message spread through Nineveh like wildfire. And all the people, they did two different things They began to fast and put on sackcloth, which is like the clothing of the poor or the enslaved or the destitute. It was this outward sign of an inward emptiness. Even the king did this in his response. He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the posture of despair, of humility. This is like mourning before the death comes, right? The most powerful person in one of the most feared kingdoms, he is humbled by one man's message from God. And this king made a declaration. It was a citywide fast, no food or drink for anything living, put on sackcloth. But for me, what's important is what else was said. It wasn't just fasting, it wasn't just religious dressing, but he also said this, he also said this, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. If it wasn't for that, it could just be like this king was calling everyone to put on this religious performance of how sorry we are. You know, like, oh, God, we are so sorry. We're we're just, look at us. You know, we're going to fast. Maybe we can earn your favor again. But instead, they're actually going to God, urgently calling upon God. People who were far from God all of a sudden now are pleading to Yahweh, the living God. Not only that, but they're looking at their evil ways and their violence, and they're turning from that to God again. One of the themes of Jonah, we find in Jonah, if we take it seriously, like I hope we do, is a correction of how we understand and see sin. Because this, this story is displaying something else, that God, how God sees sin differently than what many of us are taught. We're taught that sin is very individual. It's like what I have done wrong you know, and what, what have I done to step outside of God's design rather than saying sin is also communal, what we have done, what we have done as people. We live in a hyper-individualized world we, where we can focus on my particular life, how it aligns or doesn't align with God's commandments. And we can neglect what we are doing as a society, what we're doing as a culture. This is a uniquely American thing this kind of individual uh, living, but it's also a unique product of American evangelicalism, which I know for many of us is how we grew up. So much of what we were taught about how to live well focused on am I living rightly with God, and it's focused on the gifts and the promises that God has given me. So much it can be whether or not I know Jesus as my Savior, even the way we talk about the gospel. The gospel is about my personal salvation, right? Right? Am I saved? Are you saved? That is important, but the gospel is about a whole lot more than me and my eternal uh, assurances. God cares deeply for our systems that form our society and exploit the lowly. This is clearly what Nineveh is in trouble for, is as a culture, as a people, they enabled violence and oppression to people. In this story, God sends Jonah, not to individuals, but to the people of the great city of Nineveh, all of them, because of their collective wickedness, their violence, their exploitation of the weakest. And because of that, they will all be overturned. Wouldn't that be hard for us? Like, (laughs) that would be really hard for us to be experiencing the consequences of collective sin when perhaps we would object. What did I do wrong? Like, I don't... Don't let me in with everyone. I'm not for this. I didn't agree with this. But what we see here is that God displays a sort of indifference to that argument. I mean, even the animals are being forced to fast and put on sackcloth. Like, even the animals, the poor animals. How bizarre. Like, who would ever dress up their animals like that? I mean, it just makes no sense to me. Sometime back, I read a book called Divided by Faith. It details the the differences and the division between the black church experience in America and the white evangelical church in America. And one of the greatest divisions is the obsession, the obsession that the white church in America has over individual personal salvation. For the black church, the gospel not only cares about a personal saving relationship with Jesus, but is also displayed in policies that shape equality, justice, and goodness. The gospel is not only vertical about me and God, the gospel is also horizontal, us as a people, and how God might want to reorder our society towards peace and goodness and justice. God doesn't only want us to save people, but God wants societies and communities and policies that reflect God's goodness God's peace, God's compassion, and with a deep, deep consideration, especially for the lowly. That's what we find here in the book of Jonah. Jonah, the writer of Jonah, is displaying this beautiful juxtaposition in this story. On one hand, we have the hard-hearted stubbornness of Jonah, and on the other hand, we have the humility and the radical repentance and the immediate turning from these godless heathens in Jonah's mind. For Jonah to obey God, it took storms, it took casting of lots, it took almost killing these sailors, it took a fish. And even then, it seems like Jonah is kind of half-heartedly obeying God. And at the five words that this community hears, all of the people who are deemed the enemy of God, they immediately turn and uniformly repent with abandonment. Do you see how this story is teaching us? Like just to be so careful of how we characterize. Who is chosen as God's chosen people? It's actually people who have hearts that are open to mercy. Those are the people who seem to experience God more fully. It's people who are willing to change, to look at their society, not only their own life, but their society and how how they can repent collectively. And the king, he does so, but he also holds out hope. This is what he says. He says, who knows? God may relent and with compassion, turn from his fierce anger, so that we will not perish. And what we find in verse ten is that is exactly what happens. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God was watching. Right? Not about how much sackcloth they were going to wear and their religious performance, but no, He was watching if they were going to turn from their evil and violent ways. Right? Evil ways. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction He had threatened. Now, if we were to take this writing seriously again, like I hope we do, Jonah is challenging us with this, with this prophetic power, not in his eloquence in Jonah's words, but what we see in these chapters, what we see here is this, this display of who God is. What we see is God's almost paradox in his character. The, the, the work of here, Jonah... The writing, what we're supposed to take from it is Jonah. Another prophetic writings. what we are just reading is the words of the prophet here. It's what God's displaying in this book, how God is uh, a character in Jonah, what we see God doing. What we see here is a paradox of his character, of God's character. First, what we see is a story, is a picture of a God who judges. Many of us see two very different depictions of God in the Bible. We have the Old Testament God who is angry, and smites, and causes famine, and wants sacrifices, and empowers enemies. And then we have Jesus, meek and mild, right? Like, we love that. The friend of the sinner. We have very different depictions of who God is. Um, and we, we tend to gravitate towards Jesus, right, and forget and neglect the God who judges. I've seen uh, this humorously depicted in a scene from Parks and Rec. Any, any fan of Parks and Rec? Where are my people at? Okay, I love this scene. Someone actually, I saw someone do this. uh, It made me laugh so hard. They uh, depicted April and Andy, one of my favorite relationships in all of TV. They're about to throw a Halloween party. But they say, all right, what if April's more like the Old Testament God and Andy's more like Jesus? It just makes sense, people. Let's watch this. (laughs) This is good. It's good. That's the kind of quality theology you're going to get here at church, you guys. There's other illustrations, but no, that makes sense to me. But I do think, like, we've internalized this picture of who God is. You know, we have these two different, very different pictures of God. God of the Old Testament, angry, and Jesus, who's kind of stepping in the way, saying, hey, be cool, they're with me, right? You know, that's kind of like our picture of what we find here. But even in the Old Testament, what we find here, even in the Old Testament, uh, is a picture of a God who judges. And we want to distance ourselves from that. We want to step away from that. The interesting thing is, for those who are experiencing violence and oppression, the judgment of God hits differently. Like, the experience of it is different. For those who are living in the daily rerun of injustice and abuse and brutality, you're not praying for the God of the chicken soup of the soul. You're praying for a God of justice. You're praying for a God who can intervene. I honestly think our distaste of the God's righteous judgment is the sure sign of our own privilege. Because many in this world are praying for, pleading for a God who can stand up for the oppressed, who can end cycles of violence and brutality. They're not praying just for a meek and mild Jesus. They're asking for a God who can judge, who can overthrow a city. You pray that God can, might disrupt violence and structures of repression and the people of Nineveh, they know their ways. They know that they are living in wicked ways that are oppressive. The king knows it, that they're violent and evil. He's asking them to take account of their own lives and turn. And God's word through Jonah forced them to do that. And that is a good thing. But even then, the king knows that there's more to God's character than of judgment. God is also a God of compassion. Who knows? Some of us are really uncomfortable with the idea of a judgmental God, but there's other of us, if we're honest, we're also uncomfortable with a God who can relent, a God who can turn, a God who can show compassion, especially to our enemies. We find this explicitly in verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. This word relented could also be translated as repented or changed his mind. Isn't that a dangerous idea? A God who changes God's mind. This is the one message that generates a lot of discussion about whether or not God changes God's mind. In the ancient Near East, the gods were seen as erratic, as volatile. Anytime you messed up, oh, God would get really angry, but then if you threw some sacrifices together... Okay, you know, appeased God. But here, God's relenting is different. God's not fickle or capricious. God is responsive. God is actually listening and watching them as a community and is responsive. And don't we want a God that is responsive to us? Don't we want a God who hears our prayers, who's called out for mercy and actually moves and the answers? Of course, for me, not for my enemies. I don't want God to relent for those people. God belongs to us, right? Like, why, Why God should not be relenting over there? We need a God of judgment, right? We need a God who can judge them. But what Jonah tells us is that God's character is not impartial. God plays no favorites. We don't get to claim God as our own. God will be who God is for all people. A God of judgment and a God who may relent. A God who may be compassionate. God will be a God of judgment, but also God will relent. In Jonah, we see this parody. I like that word parody of God's character. Parody speaks of a balance, of like imagine scales that ensures equality on both ends. And what we see here in God's character is on one hand, God is a God of judgment, on the other hand, God is a God of compassion, God is a God of justice, and also a God of forgiveness. It is human nature to overemphasize one characteristic. Over the other. It's a part of who we are. We know that we know that God is full of justice and full of compassion, but many of us wish it would just be one side. But this is how God is. God is a God of parity. And you can have parity in going one inch on both sides or going a mile. God is vastly full of judging of the injustice. And God is also vastly full of compassion. God is just not just a little bit, just not an inch on both sides. For God's longing, what we see is not just a little justice, but oceans of it. Not just a little bit of compassion, but a universe of it. We see that parody at play in what happens, especially at the end of this chapter. God is obstinate about sending Jonah to give this word of judgment to Nineveh. But also we see that God is eager to exercise mercy. And in the end, the people of Nineveh experienced both his judgment and his compassion. And poor Jonah. He's not happy about it. Jonah wants judgment and none of the mercy. And furthermore, Jonah's prof, you know, prophetic word, right? His prophetic word was what? In 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. And does it come true? Is he now a false prophet? Should we, you know, put him on the stake? Is he done? Because his word didn't take place. Or did it? The conclusion of this chapter, and for me, the theme of this chapter, is summarized in that final word, overturned. That word could have a couple different meanings. It literally just means to turn over. And sure, that means that the people in power could be humbled and made low. It could mean like whoever's on top could be ended and destroyed, but also the city could be overturned in other ways turned over as and transformed, as moved, as reordered, and that's exactly what happens. 40 days in Nineveh is transformed. People literally change this place from a place of violence into a place of repentance. Hearts were turned away from sin and toward, towards equality and safety again. In the theme of satire, in the end, what Jonah prophesied is exactly what comes true, but just not in the way that Jonah wanted it. And what we see in the character of God, what we see here in Jonah, if we ever take it seriously like I hope we do, what we see is that God still has that character for you and I today. God still has the ability to overturn hearts and communities and places and cities and churches to make individuals and communities into a safe haven, a refuge, a, a city on a hill, No matter how far gone we feel, God can meet us and transform us. And don't you feel like that would be impossible for our nation right now? Is for our nation to feel like we could be healed. We could be a place of refuge. We could be a place of justice and mercy. This is what we should pray for. God still has transforming power. This is what we should pray for that we should follow in the way of Nineveh, of all places, and not just consider my sin, but all the ways in which our society can hold people down to diminish hope, withhold healing. And if we are courageous enough to be honest enough, we could actually look at ourselves and our society and turn, turn away from our evil ways and towards God, to humble ourselves and plead for mercy. And the God who is eager to respond, can transform our hearts and our world to bring us back to life again.
0: We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.